This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven to you. Robbery homicides take me. Give me all you got! Listen, Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. Trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and today it's uh, an exceptional treat to be joined over Skype by a filmmaker more obsessed, I'm going to say more obsessed with Heat than me. His name is Joe Lynch. You might have seen Everly. Um, you might have seen his upcoming film Mayhem if you're in the States and you're listening to this, which is doing the festival circuit at the moment. I first saw Joe's work in a little flick called The Knights of Bad Aston, um, oh. which, which which I I actually really enjoyed. You know, you heard of Ryan Quantin, another Aussie in the flick, and I saw it. Big fan. Joe has reached out um, and been so generous to retweet constantly One Heat Minute and uh, been a, a fan of Heat, you know, for his entire, you know, since it came out. Um, and I'm just so thrilled that he's going to join us to chat for a couple of minutes. Joe, welcome to One Heat Minute. I am beyond honored. I have wanted to do this since I heard the montage that you put together in the beginning. Uh, <laughs> like, And where did you get that song from? Who did that? Because it's pretty damn good for like a kind of saucy cue. Yeah, my buddy Paul is a muso and... Um... I gave him some, I gave him the heat I gave him a copy of Heat and um, the soundtrack and I was like man can you just whip something together for me and uh, and so he sort of you know had a play around on his guitar and he's got his little sort of mini studio set up and and there we get, there we had it he said yeah this is you know I kind of did this and I was like oh, it, great, it works I'll take and it. you know what's funny is that I think I've heard that theme more than I've watched Heat in the last year so <laughs> I, so when I watched it again over the weekend. I, you know, because, you know, you you guys have that now, 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 now. Like, yeah. I, I remember watching the movie going like, oh, fuck, I think they missed a they missed a beat here. You know, yeah. or like in the movie, I'm like, no, wait a second. That's the podcast. <laughs> God damn it. God damn it, Blake. Um, but no, I am I'm beyond thrilled because um, when I randomly kind of stumbled on on hearing about the podcast and ever since 1995, when when he came out that Christmas, which already 1995 for like thrillers was huge. You know, you had Seven came out that fall. Yeah. Uh, a movie that didn't quite connect as much as Seven or Heat, but I think is a fantastic movie that John Emile directed called Copycat with uh, oh, Sigourney. Copycat is Holly such Hunt. an incredible film. It's an incredible movie. And it has. And Harry some, Connick like, Jr. Oh Harry my Connick God. Dermot Mulroney. Like, it's, it's a fantastic thriller. So yeah. I was already pretty sated. In the you know kind of uh, you know action thriller adult kind of contemporary film for that year, but I knew that Heat was coming out, and I had been a fan of Michael Mann's. Weirdly enough, I had to almost like backtrack. My dad was a huge fan because of um, Michael Mann's uh, Miami Vice. That was his yeah. that was his go to show, and my mom for her birthday took us to go see Last of the Mohicans. Yeah, uh, this was back in '92. Which, weirdly enough, we did a double feature of Under Siege and Last Night. <laughs> uh, One Last of these things is not like the other. <laughs> no. And I was so blown away by Michael Mann's rendition of Last of the Mohicans, but I still had it in my head that he had done just like Miami Vice. Hmm. I forgot that he had done Manhunter. I had forgotten that he had done Thief and The Keep. 
And this was right around the age of Laserdisc. So Laserdisc versions of these movies were coming out and I was rediscovering them. And very quickly between 1992 and like 1994, I became obsessed with Michael Mann. And this was also like right around the time that I was like really kind of coming into my own on which filmmakers kind of informed me in my storytelling. And when, when Heat was announced, you know, this was, you know, obviously it was his peak Pacino. So yes. everyone was going, holy shit, Pacino's, you know, like just won the Oscar. And De Niro was still just De Niro. Like this is before he went all analyze this on us. <laughs> and Val Kilmer was still Batman. Like, and, and Tom Sizemore was just cut, like, like Mr. Super Hot after doing like True Romance and Natural Born Killers and shit. So it's like all these guys that I was like already psyched to see in, in a movie. And then I remember seeing an opening night in uh, Syracuse, New York. And it destroyed me. Blake, I, I, I felt I got goosebumps the entire movie. I'm getting goosebumps about you retelling seeing Heat for the first time in Syracuse. In I, I remember specific moments. I, like, like we were talking before offline about that goddamn uh, chain of, of flags that falls down at the end, like the, the kind of first ending of the first heist. I remember getting like the, the hair standing up in the back of my head, like my neck, when I remember that moment seeing that because – it's the calm before the storm. Yes. You know, it's the, you have this ex- huge explosion and then it like goes into silence for like the, the, the slightest, most odd beat moment. And I guess back then when Michael Mann was really firing on all cylinders, heat felt very different. You know, heat, heat focusing on what it focused on made it so fresh and refreshing at a time where I think, the, you know, thrillers were kind of very uh, plot based and very, you know, plot driven, especially in movies like Seven and Copycat, whereas he is to me, and I remember thinking this back then, it was a crime soap opera. Yes. Because what other movie ever focused on the driver? Yeah. That I thought was yeah. one of the most amazing things about that movie, especially at the time. That was the thing I told all my friends about. I'm like, it's got Pacino, it's got De Niro, but it's got Joe Boo from Major <laughs> League in a <laughs> part. It's like things that like you can tell the studio probably at least sent him one memo that said. And at that time, you didn't actually he didn't wasn't in twenty four. You didn't know him as Dennis Haysbert, okay. the you know the yeah, the great was, actor. He was Joe Boo from Major League. Let's let's no bones about it. You're a cool to say. I remember that. when he first pops up, and you know, like when he gets his, you know let out of jail, and his wife is there, and you go, okay, this guy's going to be a major player throughout the movie. But he only shows up what tw- two more times before he's actually in the thick of it, and then he dies. Spoiler alert, and then. <laughs> see the ramifications of what happens when his wife's at the bar and, and she sees what happens. I thought that was absolute genius that a director could get the kind of clout where he could basically say, this is what I want to do right now. I don't think a movie like that could get away with those beats unless you were Christopher Nolan no. or, you know, or anybody of that stature or maybe like Darren Aronofsky before mother came out. Um, and it was only in a recent, you know, even a recent article was talking about a, a post heat Q and a, a much more recent than sort of the, uh, around the 20th anniversary definitive edition coming out, man talked about, you know, I had a $60 million budget and I, he goes, I essentially held Warner brothers to ransom. You know, I had the two biggest stars in biggest yeah. actors in the world. And I think outside you talked really great around that time. It's, it's kind of the, the Miramax era. You know, it's the Tarantinos yeah. and the Smiths and the Robert yep. Rodriguez's. And so when you get to cop things, they're a lot more glib and a lot more self-aware. And I love that Heat is just absolutely not that at 
all. Like there's no, it doesn't, it doesn't try and be clever. It just, and it doesn't, there's an effortlessness to it. And there's that sort of, we're looking at a tapestry of people and like, there's like 70 plus speaking roles in this movie. And that's what I mean. It's, it's, it's so character based that you could forget about the plot and just ingest all the different character beats and all the different dynamics between the characters. And really that could be where the story is telling. Like you could, if you wanted to like, really just focus in on Natalie Portman's character and how she kind of weaves in and out of the storyline and where, where is she, what is she, you know, like what school does she go to? What, you know, what is driving her to go to that hotel and, and try to commit suicide? There's like all these threads that are so thick and rich. Oh yeah. By the way, that's a heist movie, you know, like, (laughs) and it just, it just happens to have probably two of the best cinematic heists ever at like just uh, full stop. Thank you. But like, you know, you, you bring up a good point also about, you know, at the time with it being the, Tar- the Tarantino era and the era of Miramax and indie film was kind of coming up. Usually there's a cycle, especially, you know, back then, not as much now because things can be made a lot faster and turned around a, a lot quicker. Um, but usually it takes like a year for the studio to, um, you know, or any, like the, the whole industry to kind of feel the effects of what just hit. You know, so back in 2004, when Pulp Fiction became a phenomenon, that meant that, okay, that script for Destiny turns on the radio, get that through. You know, things are doing Denver when you're dead, greenlit. You know, like all (laughs) these kind of like smart, ironic, pop culture savvy kind of movies started coming out. And I challenge anyone to watch Heat in the context of December 1995 and say that it is somewhat or at all derivative of any movie that came before it other than Michael Mann's own filmography. <laughs> yes. It's think about it. Like everything past it, like look at, look at dark, dark night. We already talked about this before where like Christopher Nolan should be bowing at the altar of Michael Mann. <laughs> and he does. What he, and does. And, 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 you know, in the special edition that's out in the States, like there's this amazing Q and a with, with Michael Mann and, and Christopher Nolan and practically everybody else who worked on it. And, you know, you could tell that Chris is incredibly respectful of Michael Mann and even says like, yeah, that was yours and that was yours and that was yours. <laughs> so, but you know, Michael, Michael Mann was working at the top of his game at that point and was able to create something that was wholly singular and fresh and felt so true, even though, you know, you, you can look at it in one respect, especially with like Dante Smenati's cinematography and the way that he uses, um, you know, Elliot's music and even just the, the cues that he uses, even down to the lenses, it's not shot like a studio film. It's no. shot like an art film, you no. know? And if you look at, like, even, even Last of the Mohicans before that is somewhat more conventionally shot than his other films, but it still feels like a Michael Mann movie, you know? Um, Heat is, to me, Heat is his thesis. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, it gestated for 20-odd years. Um, you know, <coughs> excuse me, from the, from the original sort of story from, um, um, from Chuck Adamson and then, you know, around, um, Neil McCauley, th- that original idea, and then all the way to 89 with LA Takedown, where he kind of does a proof of concept almost as a TV movie of like what he could be, um, and mm-hmm. then takes it into the 1995 version. It's, it's there. There's a, um, uh, it's being, uh, as we're about to talk, it's being released tomorrow. I talked to an Australian film scholar, Anna Zenis, who's a massive Michael Mann fan. Um, and she talks about him being like a collision. And I love this sort of phrasing, a collision of, you know, documentary realism and then hyper stylization, but at the same time. Totally. And, and, oh and, my God, that 
perfect. And and so the minute I heard that, I'm like, that's exactly right. That's what it, because to the very specifics of the characters and the people and the beats and the movement of the performers and in their characters, and and then you you know after everything with and I think we're about to come up on a moment of it in in, in the the minutes that we're going to talk about. You get everything like that, and then you get <laughs> Michael Mann ripping off an Alex Colville painting. You know, with I know, with but, which... but, but done in a way that, like, it just like that moment that I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about very soon. That that shot, he made it his own. It's almost yes. like where Tarantino used that song from Cat People in uh, Inglorious Bastards, <laughs> yes. and and stole it from basically stole it like wholesale and made it his own. Yes. No one thinks about Cat People with that song that David Bowie song they all think about you know glorious and Michael Mann you know and and if you look at that painting it it totally makes sense but that that, like that shot alone that's the shot that was on a lot of college walls you know like in the late 90s that you know and that to me is Michael Mann appropriating a form of art that inspires him without him going like hey everybody look at me i'm referencing something you know which is becoming the kind of thing du jour in like the the mid 90s where it's like you weren't cool unless you talked about you know some obscure black exploitation movie or star wars in your film you yeah. know and and that, that was kind of the you know that was the trend at the time and and michael mann kind of eschewed that like there's not many moments in any of his films where he's kind of calling out pop culture references which is I, and I do it all the time myself. It's it's one of those like cheaper cheaper devices where it's like you want to get in touch with this character. Well, throw out a band that you know like that that character likes. Someone likes that band and might relate to him <laughs> or her. Yes. You know where where Michael just is able to create these characters that feel that like that that description was perfect. They feel so grounded that it looks like he just picked up a camera and shot them from afar as an observer, like a fly on the wall. Yet knows how to shoot better than anybody else. Like there's that moment when John Hawks gets killed in uh, Miami Vice when he gets run over. Yes. And if you look at that oh. shot, it looks like someone went, oh, f- oh fuck, fuck, I got to shoot with my iPhone. It's all jittery and, and it's like, it doesn't look like it's the same camera that they used. It feels like it was just something that you saw when you passed like on the freeway. Yet the way that he uses the lack of sound and he drops the sound out and everything, you go, that's a masterful moment that felt both real and artful, and that's Michael Mann. Yes. So Michael Mann. So basically, John Hawks getting hit by a car with a handheld camera <laughs> is, is the essential Michael Mann shot. Uh, but not today, my friend. No. Today we get to talk about we get to talk some serious heat, which um, I'm thrilled with this minute because uh, you know it's it's not quite one of the the big big moments. But it's but it's a moment that I like is so badass that it almost feels like a mini set piece in a way. It's like you got a set piece within a set piece. And the the I'm I'm thrilled. I've watched this minute a few times, and we had a slot. And guys, Joe is coming back. Not he. Joe is Joe is on the show today. He's doing this minute. He's going to do the preceding minute. But I've promised Joe at least one minute in the central heist. So he'll be back. There's no doubt, but there's a moment. I, I can think of many multiple minutes that I know that I want to just sit there and just pick apart. So but, uh, we'll see. We'll but, see how this goes though. But there's, there's this one minute uh, that, that we're about to view and there's something really specific that I wanted to talk about with Joe. So we're going to watch that minute now. Um, and then we're going to come back and dissect it. And even if we have to slow-mo replay, as you guys know, we're listening from home. We're going to watch this minute together and then we're going to unpack it. So, Thank you so much. Have a listen. 
There we go. What a perfect way to end it. What a perfect way to end. Like sometimes when I watch a show, I'm sitting there going like, ah, crap. They're like in the middle. Of, they're they're in the middle of Pacino talking, and then sometimes it just like it ends almost as if Michael Mann was like thinking about your podcast from the future, going like, he's gonna like this part. He's gonna like it's a nice clean out. Um, but man, what a what it, like for, for for one minute you get this really intense, you know, really raw moment of pure like. Methodical precision in, in in another example of how they are so meticulous with what they do. Yes. Like, let's be honest, they were not going to let Wayne Grow go. Oh. Like, I, when the, the second that he opens up the trunk, you go. I remember being in the audience, like at the last screening that they had in May, and when that trunk opens, everybody goes, "Oh shit!" <laughs> <laughs> you know it, like, and and you, like you, you didn't even need to show that trunk. To, to know, like, the second that, that Wayne Grow is walking out and, the, you know, you, you see Chris walk one way and then you see, uh, you know, Sizemore go the other way. It's like, these guys are, they know exactly what they're doing. They probably, you know, the, one of the deleted scenes that Michael Mann will probably put in in, like, 10 years <laughs> is watching them going like, okay, so I'm going to go over here, you go over there, you go over there, check your, you know, you know check your outs and uh, let's go get a piece of pie. You know, it's... They they are completely exacting in what their intentions were. So everything that Neil does is very economical, you know. Like from from the first gut punch that he gives to how he brings Wayne Grow. By the way, all right, two things. One, for the longest time, I thought that Kevin Gage's character was named Wayne Grohl. I Wayne Grohl, like, like Dave Grohl's. I, Crazy cousin. I, and, and Foo Fighters came out that <laughs> summer. So I thought it was like an homage to Wayne Grohl or like to Dave Grohl or something. But like this was at the time before IMDb and before you can just like check shit on your phone within oh, seconds. Of course. Like, I, I, I think I like split the theater because I had to pee so bad. But I don't remember seeing the credits or I would have noticed that. And I just remember like going like, oh, yeah, that Wayne Grohl, he's fucking he, he's tough. And then I remember like looking some recently going. It's Wayne Grow. It's one name. <laughs> oh God damn it! And my whole life has changed. But uh, with that actor, uh, that actor Kevin Gage, telling story real quick. Let me just get this out now, uh, because because unfortunately Wayne Grow has escaped, and like a like a contagion, he is he's permeating around L.A. at the moment in the film. So like before he leaves for a good stint, so. I had always been terrified of that cat, that actor. I just I thought he was just the scariest dude. He is terrifying. The way that Michael Mann shoots him is terrifying. And uh, about 10, 10 years or so ago, this movie came out um, that I kept hearing about called Chaos. And it was essentially a remake of Last House on the Left, mm -hmm. uh, directed by this guy, David the Demon DeFalco. <laughs> if you look him up, look up, look up the behind the scenes stuff where there's a special feature where the, de the demon goes to a, a real morgue and he's like trying to show how hard he is. And this guy has white contacts, uh, a, a big thick thing of like chain mail around him and spandex. He looks like a, like a WWE like <laughs> minor, minor player. And he's walking around this, this like autopsy room and going homicide, suicide. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. And this is right when I'm getting like I, I need to get white contacts if I'm gonna have to like this is gonna work out shit I like I gotta change my image but anyway so this guy made this movie that was essentially a Last House on the Left ripoff 
And I remember going to see it, and the second that Kevin Gage shows up as, as basically the main bad guy, I, I, my throat went into my asshole. Like, yeah. like my heart just sank. I was, like, already, because of what he did in, you know, uh, in Heat and other movies, I was like, holy shit, this guy is fucking hardcore. And he delivers one of the most terrifying performances I have ever seen in a movie like that. I, 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 I don't recommend the movie uh, for certain reasons, and, and believe me, like, it's, it's as rough as it comes. It was so rough that I, and this has only happened a few times, I actually took a shower after the movie. That's Ugh. how, like... This, like rough this movie is but I was blown away by this guy's performance so a couple months later I was working at this uh, video game network named G4 and they sent this out to uh, this makeup effects company uh, called Almost Human run by uh, Rob Hall who directed um, the uh, Laid to Rest movies um, he's, he's a very like famous makeup effects artist as well um, uh, we went to a shop to do a Halloween episode and I'm I'm in the lobby and I'm I'm setting up my tapes and setting up my batteries and I hear this voice. Hey, uh, do you want me to take the garbage out? And I look up and it's fucking Kevin Gage <laughs> and he's sweeping the place up. I I like seriously that same like lump in throat into asshole <laughs> moment right there. Oh oh, uh, it's Wayne Grow. Holy shit, it's chaos. Like I was I flipping my shit. So I didn't get to talk to him at first, but I knew Rob, and I was like, so, uh, what's up with the Kevin, Kevin Gage? Gage. <laughs> like, so, so, so essentially, and, and, and I'm only speaking, you know, I, don't, I don't mean to speak out of turn or, or, or like purely on his behalf, but essentially what happened was, this was 10 years before weed was legalized, in, or, or a few years before weed was legalized in L.A., and supposedly he was busted growing a small marijuana like leaf in his apartment, it, like supposedly from what I heard from another person, it was like decoration of anything else. It was not being used to grow anything, but he was busted for it and went to jail. And because of his outsourcing or like program or like the parole program, because Rob worked with him before and other stuff, Rob was gracious enough to get him a job so that he would be able to essentially kind of make good on his parole. Yeah. So it, I, it, dude, it was like only in L.A. <laughs> only in L.A. do you have a movie like Heat, but do you have Wayne Grow years later, like working, sweeping up floors at an effects shop, you know? And, and the thing is, he's acted in other things, too. I've seen him in a ton of stuff. But it's like at that moment, and especially after seeing that movie, like a couple months before, it was like feeling like I did the first time you see Wayne Grow when he's about to kill the, the hooker. And you know he and looks he's like he's you don't know what this is. You just oh, would go oh. like you, you and and then next thing you know you got that amazing pop of the, <laughs> the, the bottle. You just go. That's all I needed to know. Like yeah. that guy is fucking evil. Yes. So anyway, so anytime I see Wayne grow on screen, it they're like a lot of emotions burrow forth, uh, <laughs> burrow forth, if you will. Um, but but here it's like here we've we've seen this kind of boogeyman guy not we've not we haven't seen the full capacity of his of his evilness or whatever but he's he's laid out the pasture you know and these guys know exactly what they're going to do with him and then by chance as is LA a goddamn black and white shows up and that that one mo if if you think about it it's like the two the two like in like uh what is it um incriminating moments in this movie are Tom Sizemore saying slick 
Yes. And that goddamn <clears throat> car going away. Mm-hmm. Because if those two things didn't happen, then Fickner wouldn't be t- like would wouldn't be told by you know uh, by Henry Rollins, who I worked with in Wrong Turn too, so I, I grilled him completely. On- <laughs> Uh, but you know, we wouldn't have Fickner going after Macaulay and we wouldn't have Pacino with that information about Sizemore, you know? So it's like, but that's the beauty of what Michael Mann does is he is all about the details. Yes. And even if it's something as random and something as uncontrollable about that particular beat patrol cop making a U-turn or whoever was speeding down that road by that truck stop changed the course of everything in that story. And you know, while it's not a big flashy scene, it's not a huge dramatic beat moment. You know, yes, he he you know he he gets away or whatever, but it's it's not something that makes you fist pump. It doesn't make you go, oh shit. It's just like uh oh, and and it it's a big uh oh. But the uh oh is, um, what I love in this scene is firstly this is sort of De Niro around Cape Fear time. So he's got that physical. It's like, it's like almost like oh, his yeah. elderly, phys- you know, his older years physical peak. So he's so physically dominant. So when he grabs Wayne Gross' face, Kevin Gage's face, and like peels him back, you're like, oh my god! Like you actually see that this is a really. It looks brutal- like it hurts. Yes. It, it looks like you know. There's no stunt guy there too. Like there's a couple moments with stunt people in the movie. You know, like Henry Rollins' stunt guy is, is particularly <laughs> yeah, is a- that one. Um, but you can kind of tell that like he's getting a fistful of gro- you know Wingro there and not letting up at all. No. And but that kind of brutality is just kind of par for course for these guys. And this is the bit. This is the moment. It's at twenty minutes fifty five seconds in the um, original theatrical cut of Heat that we're we're dissecting. It's I the face of Macaulay here. It's the only time in the film. That he looks scared, and There's I love a vulnerability there. Yeah, yeah, it's like the only time. The and then what does man like? What does man do? He he pans out to this empty car park, but there's like chasms of darkness, and I feel like there's almost like a weird. This is where Wayne grows. You said you called him like a, a virus, the virus of Wayne grow that's infecting LA. But like <coughs> for me, this is like a one moment in heat where I'm like that chance is like, it's almost like superstitious or supernatural. Like he goes out and he's just gone. Like he's in the wind. And there's something that Neil fears about him being in the wind there that he has to sort of, he just lets it go. And he's like, I'll well, find because it. He's got no, he's got no control. And for yeah. these guys who are such very much like Michael Mann, very much detail oriented. They, they leave no stone unturned. There are no such, there's no such thing as loose ends for yeah. this crew. And this is the first time that we're seeing, at least in you know everything that we've seen up to that point, everything from you know getting the ambulance to getting the, you know the stuff you know where, where Chris gets the the equipment to how they deal you know with the trucks. Everything seems precise, like they've worked it all out. And this is obviously something that um, that Pacino's character notices. Um, but you're right, this is the first time where now they have a loose end, you know, and that look of kind of vulnerability and fear and it's funny like i've seen that that a million times but the fact that you stopped it and, and pointed it out you're right there's never another moment even when you know when when neil mccauley is at his most vulnerable again when he's dealing with like that life or death moment with any amy brenneman in the car when he's yes. got to decide do i go upstairs or do i go you know or do i leave yes even then he seems like he knows what he wants to do 
you know, he knows that he's like, well, this is my path. I'm going to be, I'm going to take it. Even though he knows it's a bad idea, he's still assertive. So he's still going to make the decision. But here, (coughs) and, and I've, I've kept looking at this minute as as you talk about with that, like the minute punctuates so perfectly on just this empty frame. You just sit there and you're projecting all of your fears, like you sort of almost empathize with his fear and his uncertainty in this moment and this, this first time and only time that you're going to see it. And then you project it into the darkness and they just hold it there. And Dante Spinotti is just beautiful. It's like, it is, you've got these weird shapes in the background and it's, it's inciting fear because it's, it's nothing, but it's something. You just throw everything at it yourself in this moment. And I, I just love, I love this throwaway, you know, in a movie that's so long and has so much, this throwaway of emptiness and darkness is, it, I just love it to pieces. This, well, just, this well Blake, I think, uh, I think we both know at this point that nothing is throwaway. throwaway no, with exactly. My exactly. There's nothing. no such thing as throwaway. And why and, I love and it that more. that shot, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that shot because uh, two things I want to mention with that, that one shot. One is, you know what's missing from that? The goddamn wolf from Collateral. All we need is like, you <laughs> yeah, know, the, the wolf to come out or yeah. you just hear, oh, and yeah. you just go like, oh, God, this is not going to end well. But one thing that I noticed, especially in the last screening that they had at um, in Westwood, they did this like anniversary screening that was kind of tied into the Blu-ray coming out, which Michael Mann showed up and I got a huge Cinnaboner. It's a whole nother story. Um <laughs> But I hadn't seen it projected on the big screen since 1995. I'd been watching it on Laserdisc or on, you know, on DVD or a Blu-ray or whatever format it comes next. And the thing that I noticed this time, and you know, one thing to note on that definitive version is that Michael Mann went back and supposedly like recolored it. Um, and, and by that, it's like it's I've seen the movie enough to know that it's not like huge differences, but there's a richness and there's both a richness and also a, a, a deeper coolness to the blues yeah. that I never remember from the other version. But the thing that I noticed in that screening and I noticed ever since, especially in that shot is the lenses that they used in this film, these anamorphic lenses have such an interesting fall off where there's so much out of focus in certain shots that, and there are, like straight up soft shots in this yes, movie. Yes. Something that like I don't think he would have let pass now in the digital age because everything is so crisp, but there's something about the way that there's this kind of mystique about the blur that's around these moments that doesn't feel like um uh the assassination of Jesse James where Deacons would kind of deliberately like put yep. vignetting around it. Yes. This felt more like an organic thing that they just kind of discovered with these lenses and this shot to me, is indicative of them going, well, now this, this whole story has a tendril of the great unknown. Yes. You know, everything else up to that point is so precise and so, like, you know, everything from the, the, the shooting of it to the lensing of it to the production design, the, the, you know, the performances are calculated to the point where everyone feels like a machine, at least on the Macaulay crew yes. side. But for the first time, we're having this, this shot that, you kind of don't know what the fuck is going on. No. You, you know, like if, if the first time you watch it and if you like when you sent me the still uh, of like where we were going to end, I'm like, what the fuck is that? And then I remember I'm like, oh, oh that's that moment. And, and you know what? It's like when you like I used to joke with my friends that you could take any shot from a Michael Mann movie and blow it up and make it a poster. Yes. You know, and we'll talk about that in the next minute. <laughs> but you could pretty much do that with any shot that's in that movie. And this is one where you'd go, nah, at least out of context. But in context here, 
And when you cut from that shot of De Niro where it's, you know, maybe upon first glance you don't get it, but upon subsequent views, which all of your listeners should be doing at least twice a week, (laughs) we do, um, you to see Neil McCauley at his most kind of scared is, uh, you know, a testament to man and a testament to De Niro in knowing exactly the kind of balance they needed to strike for this perform, like for this performance and for this character where you're allowed just one crack. Yes. One crack and that's it. You know, like le- at least one like this. There's another there's a couple other cracks later on, but that's because of Amy Brenneman and her mustache. Well, we'll, we'll get to that later. <laughs> uh, but but, you know, but one, sorry. Go. No, I was just going to say that you're right there. And it's it's these moments, these echoes of uncertainty and that that tendril of the great beyond. I love that phrase, that tendril of the great beyond that then carries through in Wangoro, because up to this point, He's seemed out of control, and then he's also seemed oblivious in this cafe scene. It's like he feels like the only person in the cafe scene that's just preceding this that doesn't know what's about to go down for for that yep. for a brief moment. But then you kind of connect it back to that moment when he's in the hockey mask and his eyes are these empty chasms of nothing. And then you look at this in this moment, and there's nothingness. And then later on, as you said, when when you pop that bottle and you don't need to know anything else that's happened. There's, there's something underlying there's, there's here. Something, something man constantly is doing with, with that character too, because you know, there, there's this one shot of Wingro that's later on when he first meets Fickner, where I don't know if this was just a nineties trope, but there seemed to be this kind of trend in nineties movies where there would be like a kind of, um, filter or something that would kind of go at the very top of the lens. Yeah. And, and you know, if you look at like the movies like The Devil's Own, they did it a lot where it looked like a filter. Like they were using this kind of promist filter that make make the skies look a little more dynamic by being dark. But there's a shot of Wayne Grow that deliberately looks like the camera guy had the, the kind of camera cover yeah. just cresting over. And some people might see that as a mistake or a flaw or whatever. And, and, you know, in digital age today, you would be blowing it up and you would never see it again. But there's something about the way that that little bit of blackness on the top of the frame and his eye looking up where he's got that fucking eye. That, <laughs> that's a shot that makes me go, I'm going to be terrified of Kevin Gage for the rest of my life. For the, you know, Forever. Forever. And, 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 there's, and, and, and there's something seductive know, like, too, though. That's what I love about Kevin Gage's performance is that in those moments where he's in he's control. He's a rock star. Yes. Yes, he's he he could be a grow. He could totally <laughs> be a grow. He's a grow, unfortunately. But you're right, though. Like there's there's something that is sexy about him. Like when you know when he has the scene with the prostitute, and then he starts showing his fucking tats off. You're just like, huh, huh. He's not like he's not Buffalo Bill. No, you know where no. Buffalo Bill is almost the antithesis. Like Buffalo Bill doesn't give you an erection; he gives you an innie. You know, <laughs> yeah, and like yeah. literally, like his own crotch. <laughs> yeah. You know, but there's something about with the way that Gage plays him, and th- that's why, like, when you see him getting the shit kicked out of him in this minute, it's like you go whoa because he almost feels like he could possibly take all those dudes on. He's just so fucking crazy. Yes. you know, and, and also at, you know with that too. Correct me if I'm wrong, but. This is the first time that we're seeing Kevin Gage, at least after like him walking out of that bathroom with his fucking refill cup. Uh, <laughs> this, is the, this is still before we've seen him kind of on his own in his own little spinoff movie. We haven't where seen we, this is we haven't seen him at any other time yeah. at this point. And, so so once he goes away, like now we're in the kind of spinoff like Wayne Gross show, you know, where like and you see how he's getting closer and closer and closer throughout the movie 
to essentially, you know, exacting revenge on Macaulay and kind of fucking all of his plans up. But they never they never connect again until the very last moment of his life. And, you know, and that's what I love about this. Even just the 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 way that the script works is that right at the beginning of the film, there's there's like everything seems close together and intimate and then it blows out and then to resolve itself, it kind of comes back and, and all those, all those threads start to reconnect. It's almost like it's got that sort of ballooning in the middle as we explore these different threads and stories. And, and you've got the Donald Breeden story. So Dennis Haysbert's character, and then you've got Wayne grow out here and you've got, um, you know, Lauren, you know, even just picked up by Bosco and things like that. You've got all these things that are happening and then they all come back together. And as they're tying off the threads, it's like levels of intimacy, you know, it just keeps coming back and back and back. And there are less and less and less and less characters that Mm -hmm. make their way and 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 for me yeah like that's what i love about this moment it's like this is the moment where bang you've got that great beyond and it's literally where the movie diverges into a number of threads yeah it it, it, like splits off into another like another kind of dimension or another like uh kind of like an alternate reality because for the longest time we thought like hey we're gonna have these two stories and then movie says no, no, there's nope. going to be, we're expanding. We're like, we're breaking out from the norms. We're like, we have our kind of A storyline and our B storyline, but there's like a C storyline, a, a D storyline, <laughs> an E and an F. Like, but again, that's what makes it feel like, and, and I mean this in the most complimentary way, it feels like an epic soap opera. Yes. Because you, know, you aren't just tethered to one storyline, you're tethered to all these different characters and how at some point or another, whatever actions and whatever character beats or, you know, that they're dealing with at the time all converge at one point, but you need to let them breathe because otherwise when, you know, Dennis Haysbert gets shot in the, you know, in the driver's scene, eh, whatever. But when he gets shot after you've seen him deal with his wife and deal with the frustrations of trying to live, you know, life on parole and blah, 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 blah. Everybody goes like, no, like it's totally worth it. It's only probably eight minutes of screen time or nine minutes of screen time before we get to that. And those nine minutes are vital. They're yeah. vital. Like, that, that, that's the thing that makes it so good. And one last thing, because I know that we're like, we got to wrap up this minute <laughs> to get to the next minute. I'm so sorry, guys. But fun fact. I'm not, I'm not sorry, guys. This is, the, this, is, I, this is my favorite. This podcast is my favorite thing because I get to watch Heat. I just watched Heat through Joe Lynch's eyes right now. And this is, this oh, is, you got this more. Believe me, I got more. more. I can't wait. So uh, when, when he came out, I was obsessed with it and I immediately went to New York and I actually like kind of peeled off a heat poster from the wall because at the time the, the, the video wasn't out yet. Yes. So, um, and, and luckily I had an in with my video store guy who got me those posters, but at the time I didn't have that in. So I literally went to New York City and peeled off one of these one sheets, which was not easy to do. The only other time I did that was for the remake of The Blob and that's another story. Um, <laughs> But I remember I had this on my wall and, you know, like when you have a movie poster on the wall, you become fam- very familiar with all the people in the cast and crew, you know. So I would wake up every morning looking at the title credits for Heat and I would look at the credits for uh, the editors and I would look at, you know, Dove Hoining and Pascal Buba. And I remember like every morning for the longest time going like Pascal Buba, Pascal Buba, that sounds so goddamn familiar. <laughs> And then the laser disc for Dawn of the Dead came out, and I remember watching it, and I go, "Oh my fucking god!" <laughs> Pascal Buba, the editor of Heat, is one of the bikers in Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> I have now made at least three people listening to this 
podcast in their car, <laughs> swerve off the road because they come and oh fuck the way I did. But like two of my favorite movies of all time with with a guy that's got one of the most interesting names in film to begin with, Pascal Buba. That guy's fucking <laughs> awesome. Whoever Pascal Buba is, he's a fucking, he's fucking rad as shit. But the fact that this guy was a biker in Dawn of the Dead, already badass. Badass. But this got to be one of the editors in Heat. And at that time, I was like really becoming very interested in uh, in editing because like in film school, at least where I went to in Syracuse. Uh, they basically their their uh, what's the word curriculum um, their curriculum mm. was you buy the film we'll give you the equipment go off make something we'll tell you how much it sucks you'll learn from it go back and make another one yes you know so it was really hands on and I love that and I immediately jumped into the idea because I was the kid who took two VCRs and put them together and would make like remixes of. Uh, you know, of movies and songs together. So it's like, do you ever want to know what Pantera's uh, fucking hostile sounded like with the <laughs> scene from Lethal Weapon 2 when they <laughs> the rap from the big apartment? Or did you ever wonder what Mad, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome would sound like with uh, Tribe Called Quest scenario? <laughs> Call Joe Lynch, because I got those tapes. But I, I was already very interested. Oh my in, God, like, please mail me the Beyond Thunderdome Tribe Called Quest mashup. <laughs> It, it, it lines up really oh, well. Sounds so good. But uh, I, I was already very much like um, involved, like interested in in the power of editing, and to see how man already like if you looked at his other movies and how um, especially Last of Mohicans, he he's got a command of editing that I don't think any other director, maybe other than like Scorsese, like with his relationship with Thelma Shoemaker has even though he doesn't use the same editor a lot of times and the fact that like the the fucking biker from dawn of the dead (laughs) i was like sitting there at the movie old because this you know this was probably either like on the last vestiges of the uh cutting on film days and into like the avid days this is like 94 95 so some people were still cutting films some people were you know using um you know video toasters or some kind of like video system um, pretty arcane, I'm sure, but th- like, if you watch this movie, you can't not help but see like how everything feels so exact. Even there, there are even moments like in the heist itself when De Niro picks up Val Kilmer uh, when he's on the when he's on the ground. You could tell there's a speed ramp there mm. that you can tell like if anything else, he probably just needed to get him up faster for performance. It wasn't like a like a McGee moment of like speeding up or slowing down or a Zack Snyder moment. You know, this was something that was born pure, purely out of performance necessity. But because man is at the helm with these edits, he gets away with these kind of like jump cuts and, and smash cuts and everything. And they feel so very artful. Yes. And yes. everything in this minute that like, you know, go back and watch it again because there is something that is very character reflective of these guys Whereas in other scenes in the movie, it, it tends to be like, for example, when um, Pacino and Diane Venora are uh, having sex, that the way that's cut is cut like like Paul Greengrass would, you know, very yeah. documentary. Yeah. It doesn't feel methodical. It doesn't feel exact. It doesn't feel precise. It feels kind of like messy. Like and, sex. it feels organic. Like, it, it feels organic. And you, feels you're like flowing with it. Yeah. Like it. that messy editing reflects their messy relationship down to like 
the messy use of the angle where like rack focuses to, you know, to them at one point, which normally would have been like something that the camera guy was doing like right before they started to take, but he, but man used it, you know, whereas here, just like these guys, every cut feels like it's part of their plan. Hmm. And when we get to the moment where, you know, they lose Wayne watch how the tempo of the editing gets a little quicker, but not in a way that's part of the mythology, like the, the, the kind of process of these guys. And then you get to that final moment where you, you leave us all out in the dust, looking at, at, at like kind of infinite blackness. And when we get to the next shot, we kind of go back into the, you know, the precision of Michael Mann. But for that one moment, it feels like we're allowed to say, uh-oh, because chaos reigns. Because <laughs> Wayne is now out there somewhere. He's in the wind. He's in... Yep. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no better way that I could end that episode than there. Thank you so much to Joe Lynch for the first of two minutes. We'll be back with another minute of One Heat Minute. Thank you to Garth Franklin for our website design, Paul Davies for our music. I've been Blake Howard. Um, and uh, please rate, review, subscribe to One Heat Minute. And uh, Joe, thank you so much again. Oh, uh, we're not. We're just getting started, baby. We're just getting started. I'm just getting warmed up. <laughs> thank you so much. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.